Well, we're going to take time to read our scripture lessons today. Our first scripture text is from Genesis chapter 3, verses 14 and 15. This may seem like a strange text to read on Pentecost. This is in the Garden of Eden, the immediate aftermath of the fall, and it's God's pronouncement of judgment and curse upon the devil. So, uh, <clears throat> but we want to hear that, hear what it says, and it'll be important at one point in our sermon. Listen here to God's word. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you more than all cattle and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you will go and dust you will eat all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. Amen. And then our Epistle reading is from Acts, which isn't really an epistle. And we're going to read the account of the first day of Pentecost. Well, it's not the first day, but it's the first day under the new creation. Pentecost has been going on since Exodus 16 or something like that, wherever they had the, the uh, it was all set out to Moses by the Lord. And we're going to read a little farther than what it uh, lists here. It says 13, but we'll read down through verse 21, just to get the flow of things, all right? So listen here to God's Word. When the day of Pentecost had come, or had fully come, they, that is, the apostles and all those gathered with them, about 120 people, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a noise like a violent rushing wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. And there appeared to them tongues as of fire, distributing themselves, and they rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit was giving them utterance. Now there were Jews living in Jerusalem, devout men from every nation under heaven. And when this sound occurred, the crowd came together and were bewildered, because each one of them was hearing them speak in his own language. They were amazed, astonished, saying, Why are not all these men who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we each hear them in our own language to which we were born? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the districts of Libya around Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them in our own tongues speaking of the mighty acts of God. And they all continued in amazement and great perplexity, saying to one another, What does this mean? But others were mocking, saying, They are full of sweet wine. But Peter, taking his stand with the eleven, raised his voice and declared to them, Men of Judea, and all you who live in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give heed to my words. For these men are not drunk, as you suppose, <coughs> for it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what 
was spoken of through the prophet Joel. And it shall be in the last days, God says, that I will pour forth of my spirit on all mankind, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my bond slaves, both men and women, I will in those days pour forth of my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will grant wonders in the sky above, and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun will be turned into darkness, and the moon into blood before the great and glorious day of the Lord shall come. And it shall be that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Amen. <coughs> In our primary text today is from Revelation. Chapter 20. We read verses 1 through 10 last week. We're going to read verses 7 through 15 this week. So there's a little bit of a repetition, a little bit of an overlap. Listen here to God's word. <clears throat> when the thousand years are completed, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together for the war. The number of them is like the sand of the seashore. And they came up on the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints in the beloved city, and fire came down from heaven and devoured them. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are also, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. <coughs> then I saw a great white throne and him who sat upon it, <clears throat> from whose presence earth and heaven fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne, and the books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books according to their deeds. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them, and they were judged, every one of them, according to their deeds. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Amen. We'll take a few moments to bow our heads and silently meditate upon God's word, which we've read. Holy God, we are here before you, aware of... <laughs> our great need of the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. We don't stand before you complete in and of ourselves. We stand before you in a dependent but worshipful position, attitude. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for being our Savior, for mentioning our name before the Father, before the throne of grace. And thank you, Holy Spirit, for your enlivening work which you've accomplished in our lives. We pray now that you, Almighty God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, would bless us with your presence and with your ongoing work in each of our lives. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We read in the text this morning these words. When the thousand years are completed... Now, what in the world does that mean? Have you ever thought about that? When the thousand years were completed, 
It means at the end of the millennium, right? Whatever that is. Last week we talked about millennial positions. Remember, premillennial, amillennial, postmillennial, panmillennial. We don't give credence to that, but uh, <laughs> we talked about the millennial positions, but we did not talk about or define the millennium itself. Why not? Because it's complicated. And we had enough to do last week without trying to address the issue of the millennium itself, which we want to do initially a little bit today so that uh, we can get some things clear in our mind, which we don't always have. <clears throat> I'm going to suggest that there are four basic questions that must be answered by your millennial view. Now, I'm going to walk through those and give some answers. Remember, I'm a post-millennialist, so my answers will reflect that perspective, but I'll try and give fair play to the others as well. Uh, here's the first question. Is Jesus physically present during the millennium? That's a question to be answered. What's your thought about the millennium? If you're a premillennial person, whether you're dispensational premillennial or historic premillennial or whatever it would be, if you're a premillennialist, you say yes. Jesus himself is physically present all during those thousand years uh, of the millennium. Both amillennialists and postmillennialists say no. Jesus is not physically present during those, that time which we term the millennium. We'll see how that our next question will, well, actually our fourth question will deal with the, the millennium that, in that way. Uh, now, what's, from my perspective, what's a major problem with, with uh, uh, Jesus being physically present in the millennium? Here's the way Louis Burkhoff, in his systematic theology, presents it. He says, it is impossible to understand how a part of the old earth of sinful humanity can exist alongside of a part of the new earth and of a, new, of a humanity that is glorified. How can perfect saints in glorified bodies have communion with sinners in the flesh? Because that, as we'll see in a little bit, uh, if you hold that Jesus is physically present, you hold that also all the persons who've been regenerate uh, prior to that time are raised from the dead and, and are present as well. And so you have this mixture of glorified bodies and still regular human flesh bodies like our own. And how do you, how do you, how does that comport? And I, I simply don't find any place where, where uh, that is taught or even suggested, I don't think, in the scriptures. So uh, that's one of the reasons why I am what I am. Now, the second question is this. What are the first and second resurrections? Well, let me put up for you again a, a verse from last week, <clears throat> Revelation 26. It says, blessed and holy is the one who has a part in the first resurrection. Over these, the second death has no power. But they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. So, 
that's important. There is a first resurrection. That implies there's a second. How do the various positions line up on that? The premillennialist would say that the first resurrection starts with the rapture. When Christ comes in secret, doesn't come all the way to earth, stops mid-heaven, and the, all those who are regenerated alive at that time are caught up to him, and as well as those who are in the grave are caught up to him, and goes back, and then there's a tribulation period, and then Christ comes again at the end of that, and again, depends on where you are, it could be seven years, it could be three and a half years, it could be two years, there's all kinds of opinions on that, and then Christ comes back again with all those he raised in the first resurrection, all those dead, regenerate persons from thousands of years of church history. Come back and they reign with him uh, for a thousand years. Uh, well, what about all the unregenerate? When are they raised? They're raised at the end of the millennium. The great white throne judgment is when they're raised. So you have two resurrections. Actually, you have two and a half because you have the half one, so to speak, when, when uh, uh, he comes in for the secret rapture and then when he comes all the way. Now then, uh, the amillennialist and postmillennialist have basically the same view. They say the first resurrection refers to the fact that we're all born dead in our sins and trespasses, right? We're all born dead there. And then we're born again. We're raised to newness of life. And so the first resurrection refers to the new birth. Now, they cite John 5, verse 25 where Jesus speaks and says this, Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming, and now is. It's not off in the future. It's not somewhere else. And now is when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. And so that's what they would say. Uh, the amillennialist and the postmillennialist would say that's the first resurrection. Uh, that's what Jesus was speaking about in that particular place. Uh, Jesus goes on later in that passage, and they would say, here's where he talks about the second resurrection. Uh, later on in John, well, just you skip a couple of verses, then you go down to verse uh, 28 and 29. Jesus says, do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming. No one now is. An hour is coming in which all who are in the tombs, okay, all who are in the tombs, will hear his voice and will come forth, those who did good deeds to a resurrection of life, and those who committed evil deeds to a resurrection of judgment. Now that would seem to imply that in the second resurrection, you have both good people and bad people, to put it in simple terms, all right? We know it's not, not really that way, but that's, that's just simple terms. You know, you're going to have a resurrection to life and a resurrection to judgment at this second resurrection. Uh, that's the great white throne judgment. Uh, so, the second question is this, what are the first and second resurrections? How you answer that question will help determine which millennial position you take. The third question, what is it that inaugurates the millennium? How do we know when it begins? For the uh, amillennialist, it's easy. 
the, the, the millennium began with the resurrection of Jesus. You know, the amillennialist doesn't mean, mean that don't believe there's a literal millennium. So it began with the resurrection of Jesus and continues on until he returns. The premillennialist has no problems because the millennium comes or is inaugurated, it begins when Christ returns second time, fully. We'd say the final return of Christ. That's when it starts. So there you have very clear indications in each of those positions of when the millennium begins, what inaugurates it. Us poor people who are post-millennialists have a problem. When in the world does the millennium begin? And you know, Jonathan Edwards was a post-millennialist and he tried to figure out when that was going to happen and he projected it was going to happen in about 1840, 1850, something like that. Well, he was wrong, just so you know. <laughs> That's nothing wrong with that. We've all been wrong. If you've not been wrong, get out of here. You're in the wrong place. How's that? Uh, and we're all wrong regularly. Unfortunately, it seems like. Uh, but for post-millennialists, it's some indeterminate time when what? When the gospel and peace and all the fruits of the gospel will prevail across the entire face of the earth. That's when the millennium begins. I actually think that's going to happen. Now, this is a problematic position. Why? Because what happens is people who take this position adopt two different ways in which that period of peace, that golden age, how that comes about. Are you bored yet? <laughs> I mean, this is pretty, pretty, uh, there's not a whole lot of preaching here. I mean, it's just, so anyway, thank you for staying with me. Uh, so let me, uh, let me see. I think I have a slide about this. Oh yes, here it is, one from Louis Burkhoff. We quoted from him before, it says, one perspective expects the millennium to be realized through the supernatural influence of the Holy Spirit and the other perspective expects it to come by natural process of evolution. So you have radically different positions on how this is going to happen. And so you have, uh, at the turn of the 1900s, uh, there was this big uh, social gospel movement and, and education and progress. And, and we were, the human beings, us, in our finitude, our finiteness, we were going to bring in the, the millennium, bring peace. Woodrow Wilson, you know, World War One and the League of Nations, you know, it's the war to end all wars. What they all thought. Progress. You still hear that, by the way. The progressives today, the pro people who are progressive today, they go back to this. Uh, and there's all kind of things I could say about that, but... Uh, we want to have lunch sometime today, right? So I'll forego that. So that's one side of that. The other, though, is this, is what, what, what uh, Burkhoff said, is that it will come about through the supernatural influence of the Holy Spirit. That is, it will come about by regeneration. There will be an ongoing spread of God's people, and God's people will have a leavening influence upon the people around them. That's why you always hear us talk about what is your, what, what is it like in your sphere of influence? What kind of influence are you having? And the idea is that regenerate people will have an influence until everyone says, yes, that's right. All over the world will say that.
Uh, so there's a big difference, and it's a, a, a major difference. Will it be a work of the Holy Spirit, or will it be a work of man? See, we're not, we don't really believe that politics will solve it. Politics is part of the problem. So I, we don't place any millennial hopes on political figures, whether you be a, a Trump supporter or whether you be a Joe Biden supporter, whether you be this or that. We don't think any of those guys are going to bring in uh, the millennium or in that, that they're, they're all fallen folk. Uh, so now, number four, the fourth question you have to ask is how long will the millennium last? That seems like an obvious question, doesn't it? Seems like it has an obvious answer, and it does. Uh, for the amillennialist, it's from the time of the resurrection till Christ returns. It's not a thousand years, it's however long that is. And we know it's at least 2,020 years, right? Well, 2,000, well, not even that, 1,970 years. Something like that. Anyway, it's, it's a, it's all, well, no, it's longer than a thousand years, but it's, that's how long it is. It lasts for that long. It's an indeterminate long time. 1,000 means just a bunch. And I have no problem with that being what a thousand means. The premillennialists will say the millennium at lasts for a thousand years, more or less. And they're not precise. It's not like, you know, we can't put God on a, on a, on a time field and say, well, now God do this and, you know, God, do, it's time. Now you do that with us on John, you're supposed to be done preaching at bing, get done, <laughs> right? God, you're supposed to come back, bing, come on, it's time. Can't quite do that. But more or less a thousand years is what the premillennialists would say. And we're fine with that. Well, what do postmillennialists say? Oh, for a long time is how the millennium will last. How long? Oh, I don't know, maybe a thousand years. <laughs> That's what we would say, all right? And um, more or less. It could be 816. It could be 1162. Don't know. Uh, but it's a long time. <clears throat> now, on what basis... Do post-millennialists who are scriptural, Holy Spirit-believing, that is, believe the work of the Holy Spirit is necessary, post-millennialists, what basis do they have to think there's even a shred of evidence that such could possibly be the case? Well, let's look at the Great Commission again. Here's what the Great Commission says. Go, therefore, and make disciples of what? Of all the nations. How many? All the nations. Kids in confirmation have heard me do that. L's are great things. You just draw those babies out. Oh, the nations, right? That's how many. Well, what does that mean? That means you're teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, not just receive the gospel, but they're discipled. And how long does this last? And lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. That is, until I return. That's the end of the age where, where Christ is reigning in heaven and he's with us till the end of the age. Right? Do you see the implications of that? So that's one way in which we think we have great hope. There's another one. It's from Psalm 22. Now when I say Psalm 22, that may not mean anything to you, but that's the psalm that was on Jesus' mind as he hung on the cross. Remember? Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. Remember that? That's the opening line of Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And you read on through that, and it's a description of the, of the crucifixion, but we forget how that psalm ends. 
Now, just like if I said Psalm 23, those of you who know Psalm 23 can sort of run right down through that a little bit in your mind if you don't know all the words. Jesus knew all the words. But when he started the Psalm 22 at the first, he knows how it ends, right? So here's part of how it ends. All the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord. And all the families of the nations will worship before you. For the kingdom is the Lord's, and he rules over the nations. I'd say those are two scriptural, biblical bases for uh, the post-millennial hope. There's nothing about humanity in that at all, except we need to be faithful. We need to, to do our work and all that. But it's based on the work of the Holy Spirit. And if you look back for the last 2,000 years, you can see that happening, right? 2,000 years ago, 120 people on the day of Pentecost. That's all there were. Except at the end of the day of Pentecost, there were several thousand. And by the time you get to AD 50, 20 years later, there are tens of thousands. Well, now there are billions. So there's been this expansion. And now there's expansion, contraction, expansion, contraction, but there's always growth. It's sort of like your Christian life. At least your Christian life probably looks like that. You get regenerated, get born again, get made new, and, and you go forward, and then somehow you, you hit a plateau, and you maybe go back a step or two. And then you get renewed, and you go up again. It's like three steps forward, one step back. Three steps forward, one step back. So the contraction of, of, of church history is like that a little bit as well. That's what happens. I'm on time. Don't worry. We're good. Now then. So those are, the, those are the questions that you have to ask. Those four questions will help you figure out which millennial view you think is most appropriate. Given what's there, and I've tried to lay them out in a fairly consistent way, but giving preeminence to my post-millennial perspective. Now, let's talk about our text for today from Revelation. Post-millennium events is what I do this. We've got verse 7 here again. When the thousand years are completed, Satan will be released from prison. Notice what happens there. What, what, you know, there's, a, there's an important word there. There's an important word not there. When Satan is released from prison, not when Satan escapes from prison. Okay? We always need to remember, never doubt it, that God is Lord of all. The devil can't move an inch without permission. So when the devil is released from his prison, that's when all this stuff begins to happen. Well now, if you're like me, you're not all like me, but some of you are more handsome, more thin, all that kind of stuff. You'll ask the question, well, why in the world would God release the devil from prison. Would you ask that question? I ask that question. And I say, well, I don't know. <laughs> God has his own purposes. There's lots of things, if I were God, that would not happen, right? But I've asked the question in my mind, I turn it over, and I think there are some, I have some suggestions that I think might be there. Uh, first of all, there's this. It demonstrates the fallenness of man. Apart from the grace of God, 
we're going to keep going right back over this other direction. We need the grace of God. He withdraws that and whoosh, we head off the other direction. We're inveterate rebels. Okay? Now, part of what this assumes, my assumption, and it's all people's assumptions as a matter of fact, not everyone in the millennium is regenerate. Now, three weeks from today, I'll preach about that a little bit. We'll see the river uh, that flows from Ezekiel 47 and the river of life in, in, in um, uh, Revelation 22. We'll see the differences between them. But not everyone in the millennium is regenerate. Rather, those who are obedient, those who walk according to the law of the Lord, it's simply the fruit of faithfulness on the part of those whose sphere of influence they're at, under. That is, you are salt and light. A Christian should be salt and light, and it's going to leaven the territory where you are. Did you know, now this is, this is a bad example, but uh, I'm a preacher. I can remember when the first church I took after seminary was uh, out in Indiana, and the church had just burned down, and we were building a new one. And uh, we were meeting with the, the designer and the people who were working there, and uh, I came in on a meeting, and they started cursing. They were cursing. And they said, oh, the preacher's here. And it was like I poured a bunch of pickle juice over them, right? And they had to suppress their language. Well, I didn't say a thing. They simply knew who I was. Now, there's other times when I, but I'm just saying that we, we carry an aroma with us. This is 2 Corinthians 4. You know, at the end of 2 Corinthians 4, it talks about you're going to bear an aroma. To some, it's life to life. For some others, it's death to death. But all of us bear an aroma. And the hound of heaven is on our trail, if you would, to help us bear a good aroma. How's that? So, the devil's released at the end of the thousand years. Second thing that happens, a great battle ensues. Uh, It says here that the devil goes out and deceives the nations, Gog and Magog. Well, who in the world are Gog and Magog? I don't know. They don't have a place at the United Nations, right? I never heard of them there. Who are Gog and Magog? Well, it comes from Ezekiel 38 and 39. And even then there was no nation named, well, I think Gog and Magog are mentioned way back in the in Genesis, it's the Genesis 10, Genesis 5, the, the chronologies that are there. But it's the, the key to this, the four corners of the earth. They simply represent all these other nations out there. So there's, there's a good text here. I wanted to, when I say text, a, a quotation from, from uh, this is from Simon Kistemacher in his commentary on Revelation. says this, the names do not refer to particular nations. For neither Gog nor Magog can be identified with any degree of certainty. They are symbolic terms that allude to extensive forces assembled from the four corners of the earth. That means all the earth. That's what four corners means. All the earth. Not from one or two nations. So, uh, not particular nations, but representative nations. Well, what's the issue? Why fight? Why do they come up? We don't know that for certain. 
But I think we have a clue. Genesis 3.15 that we read, I'm going to put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. The children of darkness always hate the children of light and want to extinguish it. Some months ago now, I read a, a, a testimony from a, uh, some people for disciple makers who work on the campus of Gettysburg University, Gettysburg College, where this young girl was sharing how she talked about the Lord with some people there in a study group. And this one guy just got irate with her, said, you're, you're talking to me like I'm lost or something. I said, yeah. Or she said, yes, that, that's true. I don't mean to condemn you, but I think that's true. He said, well, you know, before I can get saved, I need to really know I'm lost, which is right. A lot of people resist and do not like the very notion that there are some people who are regenerate and there are some people who are not regenerate. There are some people who are saved and there are some people who are lost. Uh, Likewise, there are people who do not like the fact that, did God say that? I don't like those rules. I'm going to make my own rules. What you're saying, XY means one sex and XX means another sex? I don't believe that. I can be whatever I want to be. I mean, is that right? That, that's an outworking of that. Now, that can be something as simple as, as uh, how we talk, how we relate to people, all the things that God tells us. And you're offended and you don't like people who have a holier-than-thou, you think, attributed an attitude. I told you after I was converted back in college, uh, my friends would used to come and serenade me outside my window about 1 o'clock in the morning. John, come out and play. What's wrong with you? What's wrong? How come you Because I wouldn't do the things with them anymore I used to do. They thought I was being holier than now. Well, I was holier than they were in the sense of being set apart by God. But I wasn't projecting anything onto them. I just said, I don't want to do that. They didn't like it because it's, it's, it was condemning them. Now, you want a good verse for that? It's not in my notes. We'll be done by 1130. Don't worry. It's all right. Hebrews 11, 6. By faith, I don't have this in there. 11, 7. By faith, Noah, being warned by God about things not yet seen, in reverence prepared an ark for the salvation of his household, by which he condemned the world and became an heir according to the righteousness of the righteousness which is according to faith. So his very action of building the ark, I need to get saved from what's coming, condemned the world and they didn't like it. We live a particular way. We live as we should be living, and it, it bears fruit. It bears aroma, and people reject and resist against that from time to time. I've been on both sides of that, by the way, and I couldn't stand people who were Christians. I used to do, I, I loved to curse around them. Just watch, just watch them. Oh, they shrink back. But I've been on the other side of that as well. Okay, I'm going to hurry. I'm not going to stop anymore. Uh, And this battle ensues. It's looking bad. They surround the camp of the saints. All may seem lost. But here's this thing again, all through the scripture. But God, right? But God. But then, boom. 
fire falls. And it devours them, is what it says. Fire came down from heaven and devoured them. Unexpected. It was a, a slow military campaign. Boom! God did it. And then we have the demise of the devil and the dragon. Verse 10 makes it explicit about the lake of fire. Uh, the devil was thrown into the lake of fire. That's where the beast and false prophet already are. Beasts and false prophets, I'd say. And there, there they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. That's important to remember that. Uh, Leon Morris, in his... Nope, nope, that's not the one I want. I don't think I have this one here. Well, anyway, uh, what he... Leon Moore says, there's no intermission, there's no end. There's no intermission, there's no end to what goes on. It's forever and forever and forever. So those people, you know, very attractive sort of side discourse for people today is annihilationism. You know, you get punished for a while and then boom, you're just gone. No, this says forever and ever, day and night, doesn't stop. No intermission, no end. So we need to pay attention to that. Uh, maybe I do have that. Yeah, do I, I have that in there, don't I? I? I turned my page too soon. Yeah, there we go. There's no intermission, there's no end. Okay, then we get to the great white throne judgment. This is another one of those perspectives we mentioned before where it says, I saw. And so you have these, it's, it's like you're at a, you ever been to a, to a place where they have a telescope or binoculars you look through? You can see way far away like that. But your view, vision is constricted just where that little circle goes. If I'm like this, I can't see Jeremy and Justine over there. But I can sure see Dale and Karen. And I can see Glory and Grace. And I look up, but I can't see them now. Well, I see Jenna. I see Nathan. I see Denise. I see, you know. And so these I saw are like that, projecting on down through history to the end of time. So these I saw, there's different perspectives. So here's a perspective that shows the great white throne judgment. Uh, who sits upon that? Uh, by the way, this great white throne judgment, I believe, is the same thing as uh, chapter, you know, verse 10. So, we had verse 11, I saw. Verse, it's the same thing from a different perspective. Uh, it's the same thing as that fire falling. When it says that, that's one perspective. But another way is to see, well, here's what's going on. Uh, you know, Scripture alludes to heaven and earth, it says here, uh, at, from whose presence earth and heaven fled away and there was no place found for them. The scriptures allude to that a number of times. Psalm 102, which is then quoted in Hebrews 1, you know, all the heavens will be rolled up like a scroll, but yours will endure forever. Uh, one thinks of 2 Peter 3, 7, where it talks about uh, this present earth being consumed by fire, remember, being reserved for fire for the day of judgment. You have those. And here's how uh, Kistemacher speaks about that. He says this, At that moment, catastrophic events of enormous proportions will happen. That's when this great white throne judgment happens. For the atmosphere will be rolled up like a scroll to be replaced by the new heavens and the new earth. Scripture teaches a meltdown of the elements, not their elimination. 
That is, they are renewed rather than replaced. So we need to see that. That's what it's talking about here. Um, well, who sits on that throne? Well, Jesus does. And the Father, God sits there. Here's this text from, from John uh, 5. For just as the Father has life in himself, even so he gave to the Son also to have life in himself. And he gave, authority to ex- he gave him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. All right, that's who's there. It's Jesus exercising the power of the Father. Well, who stands there? Well, judgments have happened all down through history. In Revelation 19, 11 through 16, we saw how the, we, we mentioned there that that passage with the, the rider on the white horse, the, diam, the diamonds and the sword coming out of his mouth, that is representative of, of all the times God, Christ comes and judges people down through, through the history. Happens all the time. But it prefigures his final coming is what it is. And so Revelation uses, I would say, uh, Jerusalem and Israel as an example of what God's judgment in time looks like. Now, here's a good projection, as you would from Leon Morris in his commentary on Revelation. It says, in chapters 6 through 19, we have the judgment of God in history. But here, that is chapter 20, his judgment on history. So, who stands before him? Everyone stands up there. Everyone who ever lived stands before him. It says there's someone from the sea, from death, and from Hades. Those are all the places where people would have thought souls could be, bodies could be. They're all summoned from there. Everyone stands before his throne. He summons them. Now, next it talks about the role of the book of life. Anyone whose uh, name was in the book of life, uh, it's good for them. Uh, They're not thrown into the lake of fire. Well, what about this book of life? Uh, How did their name get there? I want to read something from Revelation 13, 8 and 17, 8. It says, all who dwell on the earth, this is Revelation 13, 8, all who dwell on the earth will worship him. Everyone whose name has not been written, this is going to worship the, the beast, has not been written from the foundation of the world in the book of the life of the lamb who has been slain. So from the foundation of the world, there are names written in that book of life. Chapter 17, verse 8. Same thing, whose name, and those who dwell on the earth, whose name has not been written in the book of the life of the Lamb from the foundation of the world, will wonder when they see the beast. So if your name's not in there, you'll worship the beast. If your name's in there, you won't worship the beast. So this book of life refers to the elect, those for whom Christ died. Uh, And that's not based upon our deeds. Even though we're going to be judged by our deeds, we need to understand what that means. So let me give you an example from the Heidelberg Catechism. Here's question 62. You kids should know this. But why cannot our good works be our righteousness before God, or at least a part of it? Because the righteousness which can stand before the judgment of God must be absolutely perfect and holy in conformity with the divine law. But even our best works in this life are all imperfect and defiled with sin. That's a basic thing. We need to know that. It's good. It's not that they're worth less. But they can't stand before the judgment of God. Uh, Question 63 goes on. Will our good works merit nothing, even when it is God's purpose to reward them in this life and in the future life as well? This reward is not given because of merit, but out of grace. Do you have a child 
uh, I have, we had six kids, and they could present things to us that weren't particularly perfect or good. And we were pleased. We were happy. We said that, great, thank you so much. We appreciated it. That's the way God is with our, even our best works are not up to standard, as it were, but he's pleased with them. We need to know that. But that's given out of grace, not out of, oh, I got to give you this because you've earned it. Not that at all. Big difference, just so you know. So we're not saying you shouldn't do good works. We're just saying, know that your good works can be pleasing to God, but they can't be used for saving you from the wrath of God. Well, here's the next question, 64. Does not this teaching make people careless and sinful? It's a good question. It's going to be saved anyway. Why not? Hey, it's a great answer. I'm encouraged by it. No, it doesn't make them careless and sinful. Why? For it is impossible for those who are engrafted into Christ by true faith. All right, kids, what is true faith? It's the work of the Holy Spirit in your heart. It's accepting with your mind all that God's revealed in His Word. That's true faith that He does. Uh, let me go on. Not to bring forth the fruit of gratitude. If you've been saved by God, if you know, if your heart's been regenerated, you've got to bring forth gratitude to Him. You want to serve Him. You want to follow Him. You may do so imperfectly. You may do, but you'll want to. And so it's impossible, it says. And I'm encouraged by that. Whether you are or not, I don't know. So be it. Uh, so yes, indeed, our deeds are right and good before the Lord. We're glad to be able to do them. Uh, it's there. Uh, here's a, John Murray was a, a uh, uh, what do I want to say? He was a professor down here at Westminster years and years ago, decades ago now. In his book, Redemption, Accomplished and Applied, he expressed it this way. Here's what he said. Faith alone justifies a justified person. With faith alone, but with faith alone uh, would be a monstrosity. Wait, faith justifies Faith justifies, comma, but a justified person with faith alone would be a monstrosity, which never exists in the kingdom of grace. Faith works itself out through love, and faith without works is dead. It is the living faith that justifies, and living faith unites to Christ. Sort of the same thing the catechism said, what I said there. Now, all this stuff here about being judged by works doesn't mean that you should do good works in order to be saved. What does it mean? There's a good commentary that says this. The point of the text is not, of course, salvation by works. The point is instead damnation by works. There'll be no one sent to hell who has not earned it. We need to know that. That's the whole point of this, is that there's no one who goes to hell who's not earned it. It's salvation by grace. It's damnation by merit. How's that? And so we have to have someone save us out of what we merit and give us what we don't deserve. So here, I'm going to conclude a little bit early. It's not 1130 yet. Here's our point. Here's our point. Here's the conclusion. The title of the sermon. We will all finally be before the throne of God above. That song we sing, it's number 448 or something like that in our hymnal. Before the throne of God above, I have a perfect plea through the Lord Jesus Christ. 
he who pleads for me. So we need to know that. If we know that and he's pleading for us, it will transform how we think about ourselves, the world, and how we live therein. Then Leon Moore says, in the end, people will either share in the bliss of heaven or find their place in the lake of fire. Uh, there we are. All will stand before the judgment seat of Christ. We need to know that for ourselves, for all those in our sphere of influence who we can talk to. They will either share in the bliss of heaven or find their place in the lake of fire. That's a powerful thing to remember. It should empower us to live for Christ. Amen.